0: Hello listeners, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are and welcome to Cloud9Fin. I'm Will Cager-Smith and I'm recording this episode in New York. We cover US markets every other week on this podcast so be sure to check in next Thursday with my excellent colleague Kat Hidalgo in London to get your update on what's going on in Europe. But as usual for the US edition, today's episode features a guest interview and today we're delighted to welcome Dave Preston, head of structured credit research at AGL Credit Management. So, welcome Dave and thanks so much for joining us.
1: Oh, uh, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh long-time fan of your work and uh, excited to talk to you.
0: Awesome. All right, well, let's kick off by talking about the seemingly unstoppable expansion of the CLO investor base. What have been the most notable changes on that front over the past year or so? Uh,
1: yeah, so I guess we can break this down into the biggest trend. Um, in one part, is that U.S. banks net added sixty to seventy billion dollars of CLO exposure in the in the last year, um, and for context, net issuance in the entire market was one hundred twenty billion. So over half of net issuance went to U.S. banks, and I'd also like to point out that's net because of runoff, the amount of buying that they're actually doing to grow the portfolios by that much is significant. And so for the banks, the US banks that had been more or less static in terms of their holdings were steady for a couple of years, obviously bank balance sheets expansions because of QE and fiscal stimulus and whatnot. Um, We saw a lot of investing in CLOs by the US banks. Uh, it's notice. it's notable because um some of the larger japanese banks have pulled back somewhat over the past 2 years relative to where they were in 2017 2018 2019 um so that would that's one notable change that we've seen is just the the very large amount of buying by us banks including some banks that hadn't really participated in the clo market before um the other thing that we've seen is you know it, if we look back to 2017 and 2018, the last time we had a hiking cycle, um, in that period, the CLO market grew by 30% as did the loan market. Because it's instructive to remember that um, if you want floating rate exposure, leveraged loans are a primary place for retail investors to do that um, through, through loan funds. And then In investment-grade floating rate space, CLOs are sort of the largest scalable sector for investment-grade floating rate purchases. So what you see is money managers really came into the market in 2017, 2018. And then because they finally got comfortable with the asset class um, and were entering a new hiking cycle, we've seen even more participation by the money manager class going along. And then the third part of it is just if you look at insurance investments, the, you know, the NAIC publishes CLO holdings by U.S. insurance companies, their exposure continues to grow. And this goes back to what I was saying before. The amount of buying you need to do just to stay flat is significant because of refis and resets. Um, we've almost segmented the market into short duration buyers can buy re- re- refis um, and then existing investors purchase new issues. So I I would say that those, you know, the insurance is not a new trend, but just a steady foundation upon the growth by the money managers in the US banks in the past two years.
0: So one of the attractions of CLOs is that they offer access to leveraged loans for investors who want exposure to that market, but can't invest directly. So what about investors who want exposure to leveraged loans, but for whatever reason can't participate in CLOs? Like, are there new structures that we're seeing or that we might see in the not too distant future that could enable broader investor participation in the market?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, We've seen a number of significant innovations in this space over the past two to three years, um, and we can go through a few of them. Um, The most notable maybe not in a total AUM, but just notable in terms of expansion of the market and a new investor base is we've seen the rise of ETFs focused on CLOs. Um, So this goes hand in hand with the growing uh, ETF and mutual fund of the leveraged loans. Now we've seen CLO ETFs, both AAA and now lower down the stack. Um, So that's one part. we at AGL, we have a low levered CLO structure where it's two to three times assets to equity for investors that are targeting seven to 8% returns, seven to 9% returns um, with less volatility. Um, you've also seen the rise of a structure that's more capital efficient for insurance companies, where there's um, a larger triple B tranche that amortizes. Um, and if you invest in the entire triple B, double B, and equity, it's more efficient for insurance investors. And last, what I would see is last, what I would say is we've seen also where larger investors uh, that are offering exposure to leverage loans are doing it through what I would term bilateral or private CLOs, where you're essentially doing almost long-term warehouse-style lending. Um, against a pool of leveraged loans, but not, not de facto securitizing it. Right? It's uh, you're just sort of um, keeping it on balance sheet, and it's a uh, bilateral type of private CLO where there's you're gaining exposure to the loans. Someone's lending against that pool. Um, I think we've seen the rise of that also for larger institutional investors that are maybe not looking for to own the loans outright, um, but. St- don't want to own specifically a CLO.
0: One other suggestion that I've heard from people in the market is that there could be a retail product that invests in strips of CLOs, and that that would be theoretically quite popular given the the default history and returns across CLO debt structures, which have been you know pretty amazing throughout the past few years. Do you think that is something that could actually work in in practice?
1: I think it could work. I mean, we have closed-end funds that focus on equity, and now we have um, both dedicated, whether it's mutual fund or ETFs, focused on the top of, top of the stack in A's. So um, I would think that it would work. I think that what we've seen is um, some of the BDCs that focused on CLO investments have decided, um, in some cases, that they'd rather just have a closed-end fund with exposure to CLOs. So I think that more And this is a trend across retail investing, whether it's ETFs specifically or or even mutual funds, right, where you're getting more targeted exposure to sectors or assets, right, in the ETF market. And I think that um, what you're getting at is it's likely to also come to the CLO market now that it's a $900 billion market. I would agree with that.
0: Since we're talking about the growth and influence of this market One of the things that people got quite defensive about last year was Senator Warren's suggestion as part of her private equity regulation bill that risk retention should be reimposed on CLO managers. And we wrote a piece last year exploring what the impact would be if that happened. And our conclusion was basically that it wouldn't make that much difference apart from one really important thing, which is that it might make it harder for smaller managers to compete and therefore reduce diversity in the market. And that that would probably give even more power to the biggest managers, many of which ironically are owned by the very private equity firms that Warren's bill sought to make less powerful. So I'm curious, where do you stand on that argument?
1: I I would agree that the burdens of risk retention um, were asymmetric in the sense that smaller managers um, felt it much more. I think that this is the nature of some of the regulations we've seen come out in general, which is the larger firms with bigger infrastructures can more easily implement and absorb maybe a small increase in costs. Um, I, it's it's interesting because from a risk retention perspective, um, for years, CLO, the CLO market had tried to think of ways for these big PE style investors to invest in CLO equity, right? Um, CLO equity is a natural complement to PE. It's front loaded cash flows. It solves for the J curve. Um, it's high cash on cash returns. Um, but like I said, if you're a large PE style investor buying CLO equity on a deal by deal basis in $40 million slices doesn't really make sense, right? You, you Those investors are making large scale allocations to specific managers. And that's what we came up with uh, that came out of the risk retention. The other problem with risk, re- there's a sort of a structural problem with risk retention and CLOs, which is CLOs are unique among securitizations. And then it's an actively managed fund with a third party manager, right? Every other securitization is sort of balance sheet solution for Uh, the actual originator of the loans, right? Whether it's a subprime auto or something like that. So asking a fund manager to retain 5% of each fund that they issue uh, doesn't make sense from a structural perspective the way it does make sense for an ABS or a a mortgage securitization where they're originating the loans and then securitizing them as a way to free up balance sheet. So it never made sense from a structural perspective, but I think that you're right in the sense of... um, where the burdens of risk retention would fall in terms of the smaller managers.
0: Okay, so I see the argument that CLOs shouldn't necessarily have to retain the risk of loans that they're not themselves originating. But one thing I think Warren's bill hits upon is a more sort of holistic idea of which groups have the most influence in the market. And I wonder if there's an argument that because CLOs are the most dominant investors in the leveraged loan market, they actually do have a fair amount of influence over lending standards, as in the banks are quite strongly incentivized to underwrite loans that they think CLO managers will buy.
1: Yeah, they certainly are. You know, the CLOs are two thirds of the loan market, right? So from that perspective, that that makes sense. Um, I guess the way I would think about it is... One, when risk retention first came out, it came out in Europe first before the US, right? And so there was um, a year or so where there were deals that were European compliant. They were not, it was sort of voluntary. And in my prior life, um, when I was a part of a team doing research at a bank, we did a study on risk retention compliant deals versus non compliant deals. And if you adjust for manager and vintage, there was zero change. Managers did not. Change the behavior whether they had a uh, whether they were retaining the risk or not. Um, as a corollary, there's a corporate finance argument to be made that if you're the AAA investor or a mezzanine debt investor, um, you would not want the manager to have all the equity, right? Just from a corporate finance perspective of you know the manager balancing between the, the debt and the equity. Um, the second part of this, though, I think what you've seen is. You can, you can show this quantitatively is that when the retail funds are heavy buyers, they're the marginal buyers in the loan market. Um, that's when lending standards drop more than when CLOs. And I understand that this sounds self-serving. I, I work at, you know, at, at a CLO manager. But quantitatively, you can see that when retail funds are strongest, those funds have to put money to work very quickly, right? Because um, they're mutual funds. Or ETFs. Um, and what you've seen is in 2017 and 2018, um, when retail funds were strongest, you saw a, a larger decline in lending standards than the CLOs. Yes, they all have the same rules, but actual overlap across CLO managers is relatively low at 30 to 40% on average. So there is still a lot of credit work being done by the CLO managers. Um, Your point is well taken on the whole that CLOs are 65% of the loan market, but individually the the managers are still doing the credit work. Um, But I think what you'll see is over time, because CLOs are able to be patient buyers, Um, and have an accumulation period before they securitize the loans. Um, The CLOs quantitatively, again, on on the whole, are better buyers of loans than the retail funds.
0: I feel like the retail investors get blamed for everything these days, (laughs) whether it's in credit or in equities. But back on the topic of um, institutional investors, I want to briefly talk about consolidation in the CLO space. So there's some deal making going on involving some bigger, older shops like Alcentra and also some younger firms like CBAM and Wellfleet. And I suppose AGL is actually an example of a relatively speaking younger manager. Do you think we're going to see more consolidation in the market? So
1: consolidation in the CLO market is, it's, it's a long discussed. Um, but not as much seen, except when we have bursts of this, right? And I think I would put this in the backdrop of larger forces at play in the asset management industry, which is within the asset management industry, you're seeing the importance of scale or specialization. Um, So we've seen that um, within the asset management industry, you have, you know, this, Certainly, um, in ETFs and the larger, more liquid products, you're seeing um, scale is very important as fees drop. Right at the larger end of the of the asset management industry, and then what you're seeing at the other end is the importance of more predictable fees over time, and that's what CLOs offer people. So I think that that's why you're seeing this interest in CLO platforms from larger managers, because you do have this predictable, um, more predictable um, fee stream as opposed to retail funds or other type of uh, asset classes. Um, So from that perspective, I think that you will continue to see consolidation. Um, It's interesting because Some of the ones that you've discussed are more, you know, bolt-ons to existing CLO platforms. But I also think about the other thing that we've seen more recently, which is um, large asset managers without CLO platforms looking to add a CLO platform, right? And I think that that's another thing that you'll likely see is um, every larger asset management firm has to sort of decide would they rather build it or buy it to use the old, (laughs) the old saw. Right. So from that perspective, um, yeah, I think that you'll, you'll see it um, in general. I think that it makes sense for consolidation to go forward. I think the question is for some of the smaller managers, um, you know, if you're a larger, if you're an acquirer, if it's a smaller number of deals, integrating those deals in terms of the fee stream is sort of what the calculus is. So, um, but to specifically answer your question, it will I don't know if we're going to continue to have a huge burst of news, um, but I think that it's reflecting larger forces at play in the asset management space.
0: And on that note, again, AGL is a good example of how the market has broadened and kind of splintered in the sense that you guys have big names from private equity and from the banking side now running a CLO shop. And while in many ways that's maybe symptomatic of how much the CLO market has expanded, I do hear people saying that it's also become less entrepreneurial and less exciting than it once was. So in a world where tech and crypto and newer sectors like that are offering pretty alluring job opportunities and excitement, um, how do you guys stay competitive and attract the best talent?
1: Yeah, there's a there's a war for talent, no doubt. Um, and I think what you've seen over the past year or so, or even going back three or four years, is... The larger migration that I've seen is folks moving from banks to asset managers. Um, This started with some high profile CLO traders, you know, four or so years ago. Um, You're starting to see more and more CLO bankers moving. Um, So I think that that's one part is um, just within our space is folks moving from banks to um, the asset management side. And I think that some of the things that you're getting at, I mean, At AGL, our founder, you know, worked at a bank and then founded a CLO manager. And then this is uh, another one. And our COO ran a CLO banking division. Right. So um, I think that you can look at it that way. I think that one of the things you're getting at is that it is a little bit easier to be entrepreneurial on the asset management side as opposed to a bank. And I think that's what you're seeing in sort of this larger movement of CLO traders and CLO bankers moving to asset managers is um, not just entrepreneurial, but creativity and initiative. I think you're seeing a little bit more of that from the asset managers Um, in terms of the larger scale of um, folks moving, um, whether it's tech or decentralized finance. uh, Yeah, this is um, no doubt a, a larger issue for the industry and there's definitely a war for talent. And I think we've seen it uh, most notably in a lot of the articles we've seen about um, incoming analyst classes and some of the things that they were pushing for and expecting. Um, I think that this is just, you know, the the nature of the world, right? We've seen it um, in the late nineties when uh, the first tech wave was poaching people from finance Um, and you'll see it from time to time. And the industry just needs to continue to evolve and understand what what potential employees want. And just because, um, something, you know, makes sense to a 50 year old, and this is how it was when it worked for me. Um, you have to understand that, um, you know, there's an entire cohort, uh, an entire cohort out there that, um, may think about things a little bit differently. So I think that it's a, it's definitely something larger scale for the industry, but again, within the industry, I think what we're seeing is a migration from the banks to the asset managers, if there is a trend.
0: So do you think we'll see a CLO, um, based on a portfolio of NFTs anytime soon.
1: <laughs> that, uh, that I'm not sure of. Um, we'll have to see how the rating agencies uh, would would look at that structuring of that, right?
0: I feel like there might be a cash flow issue there and that they're not the exactly yeah. cash flow generating assets.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: <laughs> so we've talked a lot about the growth of the market, and that makes me wonder about structural vulnerabilities within it. Like, for example, when the pandemic hit, there was a lot of discussion about how CLOs were not well structured to handle restructurings, like holding the output securities of a reorganization, that kind of thing. Do these structural vulnerabilities still exist, do you think? And how can they be fixed for the next downturn?
1: Yeah. So I think if you take a step back and think about it, I think that From one perspective, you have a market where 65% of the owners of the asset class, and by this I'm saying CLOs own 65% of the outstanding loan market, Uh, 65% of the market has very similar rules um, and restrictions and covenants. right? Like All CLOs have more or less the same covenants in terms of average rating and what they can or can't do. So from that perspective, it makes sense that private equity sponsors and Distressed funds, credit ops funds, and so forth would figure out ways to take advantage of the fact that two thirds of your market is somewhat limited in what can happen in a workout. So that makes sense. Um, we started to see this. It's funny because um, you know people because the last two two years have been. The way they were, people sometimes forget in the second half of 2019, in the summer of 2019, we were already seeing credit issues right, and workouts. And that's when you first started to see some of this happening. I think what we've seen is um, the CLO market and the CLO structure, CLO investors broadly have come to a good compromise on this in terms of allowing CLOs to participate and to not get taken advantage of in workouts or other type of uh, distress situations while still protecting debt investors in terms of how those assets are accounted for within the CLO structure. Um, it's funny. I mentioned in my prior life. I was part of a research team. You know, we had our team produced a fantastic primer on all the loss mitigation uh, provisions. Uh, that was, that we did in the summer of 2020 because of this very issue. Um, so I think that from that perspective, CLOs are now structured much better than in 2018 and 2019 in terms of distressed and workout. Um, will there be something new? Um, I'm sure there will be and investors and CLO managers will react. Um, you know, there's always, there's always a three point, 0, 4.0 Zero, 4.0 moving forward um, but I think that the compromise that the market landed on is is a good one and constructive in allowing you know debt investors are are reasonable and understand what was happening so they they, they have an interest also in making sure the CLO managers can participate in and not get taken advantage of during these workouts or restructurings
0: and on the same note what about operational vulnerabilities? Most CLO managers that we speak to are so busy right now dealing with new issuance, and that makes me wonder whether they're appropriately staffed to navigate an eventual turn in the credit cycle. Like, Do you have the expertise on the bench to deal with restructurings and, and workouts and that kind of thing?
1: Yeah, it's a it's a great point, and I can sort of focus on it three ways. Um, one is, you know, certainly at AGL we have a fantastic operations team, and that was one of the first places because we understand that both the loan market operations in and of themselves, as well as the issues you're talking about, that it it's it's a very you know it's core to what we do. Um, the second part is. Um, At AGO, we are private side on every loan. And I think what we saw in 2019 is that some of the issues, some of the managers that only went private on a loan too late in the process could be an issue. Um, The last point that you make, I think, about having a deep bench in terms of distress and workout is also very important. And I think that's what you've seen is, look, our credit view is that COVID reset the clock right? If you look at the loans that default in 2020, they limped into the year. They were the weaker issuers. We're in a fantastic MA and a as um, businesses react to this new world in terms of um, whether it's new products, new business plans. Um, but that doesn't mean that even though everything is good today, that it will be in two years. If you look back at the last time we had significant inflows, 17 and 18, we had credit issues in 2019, right? So it is important to keep your eye on the fundamentals. And like you said, to have a deep bench in terms of workout and distress. And I think that that's what we saw last time is that some of the managers that um, maybe didn't, approach it from a more holistic version in terms of fully staffing out um, operations side or you know, using private side information or having that work out in distress. I think that you could see that in 2019, um, after two great years in the CLO market, the summer of 2019, when the cracks started to show, you could see where that was happening and why. So I think that you're onto something there.
0: So that timing, I think is kind of interesting in terms of the the last big peak in the CLO market and the time lag between then and when we started seeing the cracks in sort of late 2019. Do you think that gap is instructive at all for when we might see the next downturn in credit from now, kind of post-COVID?
1: Well, I think predicting the next credit downturn, you know, I went to conferences for seven years and heard I was in the seventh inning. So it was the longest seventh inning of anybody's life. Uh, I, I think that the other thing to think about is before COVID leveraged loans, leveraged finance, but leveraged loans specifically in CLOs were a little bit unique across corporate credit in the sense that had already gone through a miniature downturn in late 14, early 15 Um, a much bigger downturn in 15, 16. But then in late 18 and then the summer of 19, you know, if you look at prices and things like that, smaller credit cycles. And I think that the way I think about it is there's always a sector or two that are going through many recessions. The question of how many of them bubble up at once. So we focus on a recession. You know, we always want to have loans that perform well Even during a recession, through contractual cash flows and things like that. But I think um, I'm not going to predict when the next downturn is, but I do think it's instructive for, despite all the inflows and everything is good now, that people should, you know, the fundamental credit work is still very important in terms of the timing. Um, So the question is how many of those, you know, in the summer of, 19, we were saying how many idiosyncratic events make a a credit cycle, right? Um, So that's something that I certainly think about a lot is in terms of uh, inflows, and then sort of an after effect.
0: And in terms of that quality of credit selection, and the underwriting quality, do you think that the investor base in leverage loan market is doing good enough credit work at the moment? Or do you think the recent inflows into the market have pressured that a little bit and are leading some to some erosion of lending standards?
1: I don't think we've seen a significant downturn yet. I think that the under- we're still sort of at the beginning of, you know, if you think about a credit cycle in terms of uh, consolidation, expansion, and then sort of a decline, right? We're still sort of in the somewhere between the uh, we're still in the beginning of the expansion period. So I don't think we've seen that as much. Um, Another thing I watch a lot is the share of loans trading above par, right? That's another thing that you can see from the loan inflows. So with with the underlying theme that we're... We've always focused on the fundamental credits. We haven't seen anything as significant as you know maybe late 2018 in terms of underwriting standards really getting away from us. Now, we still, obviously, like every other credit manager, reject their fair share of loans, to be sure, but that's a steady state.
0: Okay. And finally, I want to talk briefly about ESG. It feels like it's becoming omnipresent in the credit market, at least as a talking point. Obviously, it's less developed in credit than it is in equities, but... Do you find there's significant pressure to implement ESG and portfolio management and deal structures these days? And what are the practical challenges associated with that?
1: Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's an issue that comes up all, all the time. I would say from a top-down perspective, the first challenge is that as lenders, we have less of a say in how management can conduct their business than an equity investor, right? If you're a shareholder, you have more say over what management can not can and cannot do. So from that perspective, just being a debt investor or a lender in this case, there is a bit of the challenge. Now, obviously, we can vote with our feet, right? And um, you could have this sort of secondary effect of raising the cost of capital for non-ESG uh, industries or borrowers. But the other thing that we've seen is that, and I, I think I'll, you know you've probably heard some version of it, but a lot of the um, a lot of our credit work goes hand in hand with ESG. Um, And what I mean by that is as an example, we two of the industries that we exclude are energy extraction and automotive OEM. Now that's for credit and ESG reasons, right? So it sort of goes hand in hand because you're evaluating, again, being a, a lender, you're already sort of looking at risks and looking at risks includes Things that are now called ESG, so it is certainly um, something that more and more people are focused on. Um, I think that you know there's two ways that people go about it. There's either there's the negative or affirmative, right? But I think that it's only going to grow in importance across the CLO market. The challenge is how to really implement it for a lender or a debt investor.
0: Well, on that note, we'll wrap things up. Thanks so much for coming in, Dave. It's been a pleasure.
1: All right, great. Thank you very much.
0: Okay, that's all we've got time for this week. Thanks for joining us up on Cloud9Fin. Hit the like or subscribe button if you enjoyed this episode and please spread the love. And if you have suggestions about things you'd like us to cover or any other feedback or just want to hear more about what we do at 9Fin, you can always reach us by emailing team at 9Fin.com. I'll be back in a couple of weeks, but in the meantime, make sure you check in next Thursday to hear from our team in London.